Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Marcus Pellinor, Head of Sustainability and Decarbonisation at the Behavioural Insights Team Americas. It was recorded at the beginning of October 2022. The Behavioural Insights Team generates and applies behavioural insights to inform policy, improve public services, and deliver results for citizens and society at large. And in his role, Marcus works to develop and implement the Behavioural Insights Team's Sustainability and Decarbonisation Strategy. We'll hear more about what that entails shortly. Previous to this, Marcus headed up Strategy, Insights and Regulations at New Zealand's Energy Efficiency and Conservation Authority, which has the mission of mobilising New Zealanders to be world leaders in clean and clever energy use. Here, Marcus worked across government entities to deliver strong, evidence-based programme design, as well as the implementation of energy efficiency standards and regulations. Prior to that, Marcus worked across a range of senior policy leadership positions at New Zealand's Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, and also headed up the Behavioural Insights team's work on energy and sustainability in the UK. He's guest lectured on behavioural economics at the University of Victoria, and taught an introduction to behavioural economics for policy for the New Zealand Government Economics Network. He holds a PhD in engineering for sustainable development from the University of Cambridge, and before all of that, worked as an engineer in smart metering and energy management. Classic nudge territory. Our conversation, which is packed with actions for us as communicators to consider in association with our outreach, covers the many and varied ways that behavioural insights can contribute to more effective communications, particularly when it comes to engaging audiences about climate change. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Marcus Pellinor. Could you say a little about the work that the Behavioural Insights team does? And also perhaps taking a step back, telling us a bit about behavioural science more generally so that everybody's on the same page here. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a social purpose company. And essentially what we do is take insights from behavioural science to make things better. That is kind of like the simplest form. And so we work with governments on policy and how might behavioral science help make policy more effective. But we also work with organizations, charities, private sector, who are, um, who are really wanting to try and you know, achieve good outcomes. Um, and behavioral science can help with that. We're a social purpose company, so we only get involved with things that we believe are gonna deliver a, a strong public good outcome. What do I mean by behavioral insights and behavioral science and all that? How I describe it to myself is, understanding how people actually behave as to, opposed to how we think they might behave. And there's no, there's no perfect science. We're really complex and we are, you know, humans. You have to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. But I guess for us, it's, it's really trying to understand how people actually behave. And a lot of that is done through observation. And that's why we use behavioral science a little bit broad and behavioral insights broad because we can take insights from different fields, you know, the field of psychology, the field of sociology, anthropology, behavioral economics. I see all those disciplines as different perspectives, ultimately, to understand how we behave. And if we can understand how people actually behave, then we can design solutions that work way better. 
Nicely put. Then I guess since this is um, a podcast about communication and we'll we'll find out where these worlds collide in a second, but I want to throw a nice broad question at you, which is from your perspective, how can communication contribute to mitigating the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Yeah, great question. Very broad. And I'm going to try and, and make sure I don't kind of go off down rabbit holes too much. Communication is really important. I'm going to put it out there, right? It's vital that we talk about climate change, we talk about the urgency, and we talk about the crisis and how we're going to deal with it. If we don't talk about things, it makes the whole behavior change a lot harder. I'm oversimplifying here, but you kind of have like, you can kind of think about three main steps. There's like an awareness, there's a consideration, and then there's an act. And you don't necessarily need the awareness to act. People do things all the time without necessarily being quite deliberately conscious about it. But absolutely, if we can use communication to help raise awareness, that by all means is going to help with intention to act. Saying that, I think one of the first things we need to step back from and, and as communication professionals consider is that sometimes we treat communication as you know the solution in and of itself. And we think, oh, okay, if people only just had the objective truth in front of them or the kind of information or the facts in front of them, they would make an objectively economically rational choice to choose A instead of B or to choose plant-based diets rather than you know uh, meat diets. And therefore, we, we will use communication to fill this information gap. Now, what behavioral science tells us is that actually a lot of these decisions or behaviors that people do aren't necessarily an information gap. So you can fill that information gap with all the great quality comms that you want, and you may convert a lot of attitudes and beliefs. People may say, oh, okay, yeah, I totally am with you. Like, you've convinced me, I've, I've heard the message, I'm with you. Yet, they will still act in, you know, uh, I don't want to say the word inconsistent, but in, in ways that are not aligned with those attitudes and beliefs. And that's this intention action gap. That's a, a big deal in behavioral science and what behavioral science tries to bridge over. So boiling that back, you know, how can, how can communications or communication professionals use that? One is just realize that information, high quality objective information alone is not going to be the thing that might bridge that intention to action gap. So then how, might communication be used to do that, I would say take the time to actually understand what are the drivers and the barriers, you know, the motivation, the enablers, the blockers, whatever you want to call it, of that end behavior. Take the time, take the observational time, work with colleagues in the field, frontline folk, to get an understanding of what's stopping people from doing things you you know were trying to do, whether that's take up public transit or you know change the kind of purchasing behaviors, or even just sort of be more engaged with uh, civil society and, and climate change debate, what's actually stopping people, and then use communications to address the most impactful barriers or the most impactful motivations, rather than just sort of being like, oh, if we just lay out the facts, people will take an economically rational choice. That's not necessarily likely to get you there. And and let me give let me give a, a bit of an example to try and kind of ground it for your listeners. Um, we've gotten more sophisticated at our communication campaigns, but sometimes what 
particularly government agencies would do as part of a big marketing or comms campaign would be to point out the behavior that they want to change, how pervasive it is, and therefore we need to change because it's bad. You know, guys, 70% of young kids are smoking now. This is a terrible thing. We need to stop young smokers. Look how it is all over society. We need to do our bit to stop it. The logic intervention being that if we're just raise awareness of the problem, you know, 70% of teens are smoking or, you know, kids are being exposed to tobacco, that will create like a, a shock or it'll create a reaction, which will then like, you know, stop that. That's kind of the, the basic intervention logic. But what we know from behavioral science is that, you know, social norms and social norm messaging has a really profound impact on our behaviors, even if we don't really necessarily think about it. And so we all want to be part or identify within a group, whatever that group might be. Social norm and social theory kind of tells us that we we seek to, to be kind of like the norm within that social group. So if you are sending a message like 70% of teens are smoking or there's in, you know another issue, you might be inadvertently sending like a social norm out there. If you're in the minority, if you're one of those teens that, that hasn't tried uh, you know, a cigarette and you're like, oh, hold on. I didn't realize that I'm in the minority and all of my peers that I consider peers are doing this thing. I'm now more likely to actually go and try smoking rather than stop it. And that's a backfire effect. And so that kind of like social norm messaging, we need to be very careful about how you use it. Um, but that's been done in the past and, and done poorly in the past. In light of these kinds of insights, I wanted to understand what Marcus thought could be a better move for communications outreach, and what more he could say about messaging and social norms. General public campaigns are really tricky because trying to use social norms for general public campaigns is very tricky because most people won't necessarily identify themselves with the general public. They will have peer groups. So if you are trying to target or trying to reach out to a certain segment of the population, you you really should craft your message for that. And I'm sure that you guys in comms, I mean, you're all over this, but it's, you still see it quite often not being done. And I think behavioral science also has a lot to say around, you know, the role of the messenger and who the messenger might be, as well as the role of the kind of like the social norm peer group. It's not just the message of, you know, most people have, are not doing this, or, you know, here's what you need to be aware of. The messenger makes a big difference. So in my kind of space in the environmental, you know, sustainability area, we do a lot of work around energy efficiency because it's the big discrepancy. Most people could be saving a whole bunch of money, plus having positive environmental outcomes, yet they don't. So why not? And, and there's a lot in there. But not surprisingly, you know, if an energy company is giving you energy efficiency advice, that is viewed with a lot more suspicion or you know less credible than if it was your neighbor over the fence telling you you know how much money they save by putting in loft insulation or double glazed windows etc and so the message might be really valid but the messenger is really important another principle that's probably one of my ones that i think is really important is like the timeliness you might have the message down packed you know you've you've considered like how to frame it, the contents, the kind of targeting segmentation. You've got your messengers all sorted, but 
you know, behavioral science and behavioral economics will will talk about timeliness a lot and choosing these moments where people are more open to that message. And so specifically, you think about habits. If somebody's breaking a habit naturally, it's much easier to then intervene there to help form a new habit than it is to stop a habit, talk to them about the new habit and get them to to form it. And so, you know, the example that I that I use is around getting people to change from driving cars to public transport. Mm. So it's really hard to take somebody who has optimized their entire route. They've got like the lights down packed, everything is, you know, they know exactly where the parking spot is and convince them to say, right, we need you to stop driving and take the bus a few days a week. That is a lot happening from a behavior change perspective. On the other hand, if we can find people who have just started new jobs or relocated cities as part of like a job process, everything is new. They're just in the phase of re-establishing these transport routes. So at that point, you know, can we, you know, as an employer who has their address, can we say, oh, okay, hey, welcome to my company. Um, and by the way, we noticed that here is your, like your closest bus stop or train stop. Here is where you need to get off to get to the office. And here is like a, a free pass. And so you're kind of giving somebody something. So this idea of reciprocity is, is really powerful from behavioral science. And you're also making it really easy. And importantly, you've chosen a time where they haven't established a dyed-in-the-wool habit of driving. And so they're much more likely to be open to that change um, than somebody who's already been driving for like five years down the same route. I love it. And they don't come around that often, presumably. And they're quite difficult to then intervene at the right time. So then you have to get employers on board. You have to get uh, other messengers on board. And how do we bring all of these different actors on board uh, for the same goal? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, individually, they you, you can't really predict when people are going to, you know, have a kid or get married or get divorced or start a new job um, or move house. So very hard individually to create a comms campaign that's targeted at the individual. However, if you can get a partnership with a city council or get a partnership with like large industry bodies that represent, you know, a number of organizations, they are seeing that change happening fairly constantly. So you can talk to a council and they'll tell you exactly like the number of kids born each month. And and so, yeah, I think developing campaign, you absolutely should seek out those kinds of partners, um, do, do a campaign together with them, and then have that kind of partnership be able to then implement the material out there. I hope you're taking notes. I know I am. But what more can we learn from behavioural insights as they pertain to environmental messaging? What else complicates things for us as communicators? How do you make the information really relevant for folks? It feels like comms for climate change, you know, 101 is that a lot of people are driven by environmental motivations, but that's actually not the comms that will get folks to necessarily change behaviour. And so people may state have a stated preference for environmental good, but the revealed preferences are a bit different. And so a comms campaign just built around promoting environmental benefits isn't going to address the kind of intrinsic barriers or motivators that that we need people to do 
for climate change, which goes back to my first point around, it's not to dismiss the importance of the environmental message, it's fundamental, but it's like, how might we actually drive change um, not using the environmental message? And, and a very kind of famous example, you know, there's a lot to unpack that I won't do right now. Um, so I recognize there's a lot to unpack. Is this like comparing your energy use against neighbors? So we want people to use less energy. You know, you could throw a whole bunch of environmental messages about it, which has been done for a long time. But, you know, O-Power was the organization that pioneered this. They basically use comparisons with neighbors and, you know, efficient neighbors versus the average and showed you where you were on that spectrum. And that comparison, that social comparison with the peer group, with a little bit of positive reinforcement with the smiley faces when you're doing well, that had a really powerful impact at getting people to reduce their energy use. So we we got the outcome we wanted, but it wasn't through an environmental message, rather it was through a comparison. And it works. Like, and, um, you know, another example was we had to work with a lot of kind of organizations to reduce their own energy footprint you absolutely need to do the bottom-up effort, which is, okay, we need to understand how the energy is being used. We need to monitor, develop plans, um, roll it out. But what we found was really effective was actually creating a much more visible league table at the CEO level, basically like which companies are meeting their, these commitments, these targets, and which companies are not. And the sort of conversation you hear around the table was, well, I don't want to be lower than that person. And I can't believe that person's beating me. So I don't care how you do it, just improve our performance. And that top impetus opens a lot of doors for people who are in an organization trying to do the right thing. And so you 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 absolutely need the kind of the, the, the organization to do it, but you need the top support. And how did we get that top support? It was through a comparison um, league table. How important is feedback more generally, not just in this kind of being able to see where you are against your neighbors, but just receiving mm, some kind of idea of your impact, perhaps? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm trying to come up with a better answer than it depends. Um, I think part around, you know, around the kind of principle of salience or relevance, feedback is helpful. So Something like energy is really abstract for people. Kilowatt hours, like what is a kilowatt hour? And what does 300 kilowatt hours versus 250 kilowatt hours actually mean? Like what, what does that mean? So I think there, this idea of feedback through in-home displays and the evolution of in-home display and the evolution of feedback has been really important. So I think the initial generation of in-home displays you know, and I'm trained as an engineer, I'm, I'm chartered, so I can probably just say this, but like it was designed by engineers for engineers. It was like really technical. It had all sorts of like data, super cool, great. But still, you know, I'm now tracking a, an average of 280 kilowatt hours when yesterday I was 295. Is that a good or bad? You know, it still was not really like solving the problem of the feedback. But there's been a lot of evolution. And so we've been able to simplify feedback now into much simpler, you know, even this like red, amber, green, that type of feedback, I think really important, really, really important to help people understand how something abstract, like saving energy, if they're on track or not on track. Um, so taking 
something that's abstract and making salient, really strong role for feedback. If it's already really relevant for folks, the feedback itself might not be that important. I think it would depend on on the case, particularly important when it's an abstract concept. Yeah, CO2, probably. Okay, CO2, great example, right? We need to find a way through comms or through another intervention to go from the CO2 grams in the atmosphere and per cubic meter to something that is relatable to folk and feedback that is meaningful in a way that's not just comparing one abstract number with another abstract number. Having an anchor of like 1.5 degrees, there's something to that at a macro level, but for the individual, we, we need, yeah, we need relatable feedback. Next up, I wanted to return to some questions that I like to ask all of my guests, starting with, What's the single most important aspect of communication that any practitioners listening should pay attention to in their work? All right, so you're forcing me to choose the single most. So that's why I'm pausing because I really, there's a, there's a handful, but I would probably say from my perspective, not being necessarily a communication expert, but rather more of a behavioral science practitioner, I would say like the mess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of flipping between the message and the delivery of the message. And I probably would say the delivery of the message might be just as, or if not more important than the message. And uh, I say that because I just, so much of our behavior is environment is impacted by our environment, the structure around us, the kind of systems around us. Um, and feeding somebody a message might be great, but if it's at the wrong time or we can't action it, or it, it just doesn't fit within our environmental system, then it might just slip off our minds. So I would say like be extremely deliberate with how you intend to deliver your message, the who, the how, and then and then once you are very deliberate on that, work on your what. Uh, conversely, what's the biggest mistake that scientists, communicators, uh, policymakers even uh, make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? Okay, this one I got. So this one, I think like the biggest mistake is just to assume that what I call it like an ICE campaign where it's information, communication, education. For policymakers or, or organizations to be like, we need people to reduce their emissions either through energy use or transport or food choices or et cetera. Let's just do an ICE campaign to get there. Let's just inform people about the challenge Let's communicate about how they can reduce their footprint and then, you know, or educate them on the actions that they can take up. And that's like our ICE campaign, information gap, voila. And I would say no, that often, particularly in the environmental space and double down in the climate change space, an ICE campaign is very, very difficult to pull off effectively. And a lot of it, again, I'm speaking from a behavioral science perspective, a lot of it, I think, has to do with this immediacy effect or this hyperbolic discounting, if you're a behavioral economist. The fact that the benefits that we're trying to, to reach for are these abstract future benefits around improved you know, climate and sort of like protecting the environmental space. It's all in the future. We're really bad as, as humans to discount. We're, we're, we overly discount those kind of future benefits, but we're asking people for upfront costs or choices that have upfront trade-offs to them. 
like stop driving now, reduce your energy now, make these lifestyle changes right now for a future benefit. That immediacy effect, because we're so, we discount those benefits and we overly feel the losses at the front that we're asking people to do. Um, an ICE campaign on its own is not going to overcome those. You need to think of something else. Nice. That's very good. Well, then I've got five minutes left, so I'm going to ask one more. And it kind of comes back to something you mentioned earlier. I mean, it's the classic nudge intervention, right, with the the boiler and the smiling face, um, where that didn't involve any kind of environmental messaging whatsoever. It, it took a different route yeah. to get to the same destination. So I have a question perhaps if there's one in there about that kind of paternalistic approach. Do you think that we can behavioral science our way out of all of this without necessarily mentioning the environment? I think the challenge is so great. The crisis is so severe. We need to throw the kitchen sink at it. And maybe you'll get some guests that will say that we're, we're confusing the message space by doing that. And that's probably a valid point. I guess no is the short answer. I don't think we will just be able to behavioral science our way out of it without environmental messaging, nor are we going to be able to behavioral science our way out of it with technology. And sorry, last of the abstract comparisons. Likewise, we will not be able to just use technology to get out of it. You know, I really think like you look at the IEA, uh, International Energy Association's kind of forecast for how we can dramatically reduce emissions and it's almost 80 percent requires behavior change but that's not behavior change on its own that also includes behavior change in terms of adoption of new technologies and use of new technologies so yes we absolutely need innovation technology enhanced services different ways of doing things but that alone isn't going to be enough we need the behavior change to get there um, and maybe none of that will require environmental messaging, but the importance of environmental messaging, I think is a little bit harder to measure, but it's around social license or it's around a broader, more general conversation as the public and engagement with the public on these issues. If we don't talk about the environmental challenge, if we don't talk about the, the main reason why we're doing this to try and like preserve ecosystems for future generations, as well as for the environment itself, and the pressing need to do it now, how are we supposed to have that generate a social license for politicians to then you know, make the hard choices now for these future benefits? So much to digest, I'm sure you'll agree. But what's got your head spinning? What will you be applying or considering in your own communications efforts? For me, the big ones are timing or considering opportune moments for communications interventions and also the importance of the messenger. We are, I think, as communicators, so often focused on what we are saying, but Marcus has made it pretty clear that when and how we say whatever it is that we're saying should be higher up the list of priorities. That's pretty wild. Who do we trust to tell us what we need to know about climate change? If you're designing a communications campaign, who can you partner with to deliver the messaging for the greatest impact for your audience? And when is the best time to engage people on a given climate change issue? Presumably, sea level rise is particularly top of mind if your house was just flooded by a storm surge. So, is the aftermath of these kinds of events fertile ground for engagement on getting support for 
policies that prioritize adaptation measures against these impacts, for example? I guess my biggest takeaway is that context is super important. Perhaps we should spend more time investigating that rather than workshopping a great slogan or tagline. So those are the things that I'll be keeping in mind. But how about you? Thanks so much to Marcus Pelinor for taking the time to share these tidbits with the show. You can find links to the Behavioural Insights team's website and some relevant resources in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing, so you never miss out. Upcoming shows will look more closely at greenwashing and how we can avoid being a part of the problem, and telling stories and how they can be more effective than sharing just facts, as well as much, much more. Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkit to help us develop the skills and inspiration we'll need for this grand task, so be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.